It was intended for the human to support the machine, the machine to support the human and work. And AI means something different to anybody you talk to, which is wild. This is AI or die. What episode is this? <laughs> episode 10. It's a big one. <laughs> yeah. Our first double digit episode. Welcome everybody to episode 10 of AI or Die. Uh, it's going to be just Reagan and I today. Um, Brendan is on a flight right now, but we'll make sure to fill him in and maybe we'll you know edit him in in some spots here too. That'd be kind of fun. So uh, welcome everybody. How you doing, Reagan? I know it's been a pretty crazy few weeks of travel since we did our last pod. Um, what's new with you? Let's get into current events. Yeah, I am sick at the moment. So I apologize to anybody listening, a little congested. I'll try my best not to cough in the microphone and meet myself. Um, Obviously, all the travel, I got to catch something, right? You know, it's hard not to. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, last week, Brendan and I were both in New York. So that was super fun. We were there for the Wilda event, which is the Women Leaders in Data and AI Summit. Um, We were one of the venture companies, um, Align AI was, and that was super fun. I'm happy to talk about that. Um, the week before that I was in Chicago and the week before that I was in New Hampshire and New York again. So I'm done though for the year. I'm done traveling. Is that it? I was wondering. Yeah. Cause it was a pretty, pretty crazy couple months for you just going around. Yeah. It's been wild. Do you have a favorite airline? Are they all on the same airline? You know, do you have any like consistency across all these trips oh you have to yeah i mean you gotta take it you gotta take advantage of all the points i'm a united person so um are you one of those people that goes and hangs out in the united club as well like do you have like the special access to the back room i've never (laughs) been in one of those before i always wonder you know what's back there i'm imagining like a buffet like a bar food uh lots of desserts um quiet places to work you know. Nice, nice, nice. Sounds better than most co-working spaces, frankly. I feel like that's the move if you ever for, go to the airport and hang out in one of the lounges back there. It is nice. Yeah, well, it is nice to to be in there and to like work while you're traveling. It's really hard to get stuff done while you're traveling, so that does help. For sure, for sure. For for the listeners, we're recording this pretty much the week before Thanksgiving. So yeah, I'm happy that you're doing no more travel for the rest of the holidays. Settle in, like do what you got to do, uh, and just be more local. Yeah, that's nice. I know. And you had an event last week too, right? Yeah. So I've been, I've been doing more local, less airplane, but more like driving around state of Ohio. There was one I did last week um, in Hudson, Ohio. It's just outside of Akron. It's basically their Hudson business breakfast. So they had the mayor from Hudson, Ohio come out and then a lot of the business leaders. Um, so there's some pretty large organizations up there, especially in the Akron area. There's like Firestone and, and large manufacturers too. So they invited me to come out and just do a talk and during their breakfast related to what is AI. It's more than just chat GPT. So really breaking down, you know, what is AI? How is it relevant for your company? How are other similar companies implementing it? What should you keep in mind from a hiring standpoint? Like great kind of introduction for folks. And it was so neat because afterwards there was a lot of conversations where folks came up afterwards, just talking about, you know, the value that they got and just how they're thinking about AI in like the small town, Ohio kind of like landscape, which I love because I grew up here in Ohio. So it's always great to support local businesses around here. Yeah. We've been getting a lot of requests for define AI for us, you know, right. I think it's so interesting because you have a lot of people joining the conversation now 
who are important, like CFOs of companies who just want to get a deep understanding of what AI is, what it's not, how to think about it. Um, yeah, we've been getting tons of requests to just baseline at a lot of companies on what it is and how they can think about use cases and benefits and ROI and some of the costs associated with it and you know the build versus buy type of challenges. Which I love. And more requests for speaking engagements that I've ever gotten just in the past few years of doing this. And it's all, as you said, security professionals, legal professionals, you know, finance people, like people who are non-data science teams who are interested, want to get involved, want to figure out what they need to know just to help support from their own area. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I so think it's just getting these, you know, task forces or working groups all speaking the same language. We keep hearing requests from companies over yeah. and over and over again for that, whether it's a data science team plus legal plus risk plus finance plus whatever. Um, I think step number one is getting them all to speak the same language. And we've said that over and over again, but we're now starting to see companies prioritize that. So that's really nice. And speaking of, um, there was another talk last week that we were at, at a financial institution where it was the finance leadership basically asking about what is AI and how to approach it. And I thought you did a fantastic talk there. Yeah, I was able to kind of break down some of the different fixed costs and variable costs when thinking about building some of these components, you know, and I, and I mentioned build versus buy, I think it's build and buy to an extent, you know, there's parts that you're going to buy parts that you're going to build on top. Um, and I think companies are having a hard time figuring out where to pull the levers and which levers to pull and what could, which levers can be pulled. I heard a really yeah. good quote from the summit last week. Um, I'm actually going to pull it up from my handwritten notes that I took. Um, let me find it. And just as you're pulling that up, I think there's a really interesting conversation happening with finance orgs around AI use cases. So another kind of really big wave of interest that we've gotten is how to evaluate AI use cases. And I think very similar to prior RPA, robotic process automation use cases, where they're trying to operationalize these. The question is naturally, if we realize savings in some way or another through augmenting our team with an AI solution, what do we do with those savings? And that's where a lot of the CFOs or at least C-suite level in the finance organization are coming to the table wondering, you know, how do we prioritize these based on impact? And what are some easy kind of back and napkin calculations we can do to say these ones should be prioritized over those based on perceived impact? Yeah, I so the quote I was looking for was buy for acceleration. Sorry. Yeah, buy for acceleration, build for differentiation. So I think those are the, the that's kind of the paradigm that people are thinking about this context. And to your point with use cases, I think it starts there, you know, you can start yeah. experimentation, but you need to figure out which areas of our organization are ripe for an AI use case. And yeah. for that use case, is it acceleration or differentiation? Like we saw tons and tons of incredible demos from Microsoft, and this is not a plug for them, but I was just kind of blown away um, on how they're incorporating a lot of productivity tools, leveraging AI in their 365 suite. And, you know, I haven't seen those particular tools be operationalized at companies yet, yeah. but they yeah. were painting the art of the possible. And I think there needs to be a lot of that. Um, 
you know, we, we kind of have to balance that art of the possible, what we can do with this versus what is reasonable and feasible for us to do. Yeah. And just what comes out of the box for them, like even down to leveraging it with Power BI, like imagine never having to build a first draft of a dashboard ever again. Yeah. Like yeah. that's one of the features that they showed. And I was just like, oh my God, this is going to be so powerful. You know, give it a couple of years. It's not, it's not if that can happen. It's not a fake demo. It's when. It's a matter of when. And if companies can get these things configured appropriately and get their people trained and getting them in the right mindset to adopt these tools and carving out time for them to play with these tools, you know, I, that's such yeah. a massive cultural differentiation for companies. Like that financial institution we were just talking about, I, I feel like I witnessed cultural magic. <laughs> at that, like in front of you, you know, like event. at that event. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. just like, we've worked with so many companies and we get it when we walk in, we've seen yeah. it over and over and over again yeah. and we get it. Yeah. And just to watch another company foster that level of future thinking, forward thinking yeah. and yeah. participation and excitement. I just thought that was so well done and more companies need to spend time doing that. Level setting, painting the art yeah. of the possible, bringing in strategic yeah. partners, and just not enough companies are doing that. They're they're doing these siloed experiments that are just you know half baked, and there there becomes no momentum around it. So they're half, mm-hmm. yeah, they're half baked. They're dueling for resources, trying to say you know we have one core data science team. Let's pull them over here to work on ours versus others. It's yeah. It's stepping back and saying, solution aside, and then this is, has, to, has been a ton of coaching I've had to do for teams is like, solution aside, what's the business problem? And let's focus on like one of the great co-pilot solutions that they showed, which was summarize a meeting and send out notes to everybody. So me kind of being the documentation geek here is like, instead of anybody having to go back, type notes, clean them up and share them, they're automatically captured and shared. And just think about this knowledge hub that can automatically be created. Obviously, it needs to be referenced and used, but like think of everything that can be automatically created as just like a ledger of what was discussed and the decisions that were made with tools like this. Well, I think there's some paradigm shifts that are happening, too. They mentioned that meeting, you know, etiquette is going to change. I mean, think about they introduced this concept of not attending or declining or tentatively attending a meeting, but attending it in the sense that I want to get the recap version of the notes that are pulled from what happens and any to do's associated with me. And I want to know whenever I've been mentioned in another meeting. Yeah. Yeah. I want to subscribe to the meeting. Yeah. 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 And, and, and how does that change who attends, who's invited, who's optional, like what the conversations are happening to just knowing you can always shout somebody out and knowing that or building trust that they'll automatically get the message about it later. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, the productivity gains from some of these tools and the fact that these companies don't necessarily have to build anything on top of it. Like it's just there. Like if you're a Microsoft enterprise Huge. customer, you know, this yeah. is going to come out of the box for you. And of course they are thinking about privacy and data, um, data sensitivity and things like that. So, and I actually feel like they're doing a pretty great job uh, listening to their customers. They have to, 
if they're going to take advantage of this moment, which they will, then they're going to take into consideration all of the privacy, data privacy concerns that people have. And this is no different than what we saw with people moving to the cloud. You know, there were tons yeah. and tons of concerns around data privacy um, and access controls and things like that. And then once you understood the paradigm shift of the cloud architecture and the security protocols around cloud architecture, you know, you prepared for that and you worked around that and you got people trained on it and you got people to understand it. And I think it's no different than that. And I think in the same way that people avoided one monolith cloud architecture, like most companies chose to diversify across GCP and, and the other ones as well. I think we'll see the same for AI solutions, especially with this new GPT store that OpenAI put out this week, just around developing your own GPT solutions in that way, which I am so excited to see what people create just with that. It's greenfield. It's exciting. Yeah, there's a whole new, what's kind of considered an app store in platform that that they put together, which is really fascinating. If you haven't played around with the GPTs, which is kind of crafting your own GPT. And the, the um, example that they give is that you can feed GPT all of your recipes, you know, your cookbook recipes that you like to use. And then you can use this chat-like interface to talk to all of your recipes um, instead of having to, you know, look it up and, and find it. Um, and that's just a very, very, very basic example. There's a lot more complex and nuanced ways you can play around with these things. I know Brendan was uh, creating an AI playbook generator yeah. um, by feeding yeah. the structure of our playbooks and the content that we've developed um, along with other public frameworks and generating playbooks off of that, which is really neat. Um, and I know people keep saying it, it destroyed a ton of AI startups and I I'm actually kind of conflicted on that because if you were literally just a wrapper around the API, then fine. Um, yeah. But, you know, people have been able to do a lot of things like build a website much easier and they still don't do it. They'll hire people to do it. They'll pay companies to do it. And I think there's a, a lot to be said around the seamless interface that, Organizations yeah. can create the user experience, the support, the additional intelligence on top of the task that needs to be solved. I'm not saying whole companies need to exist around that, but I do yeah. think that there are pieces that can be pulled together to create a differentiated and nuanced product that leverages these types of capabilities. I mean, it's it's like leveraging APIs in your product, you know, in yeah. general. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard a couple terms just related to these use case evaluations, which is one POC and the concept of a proof of concept and like getting everybody at these organizations aligned to we're just testing the technical feasibility. But then in that same conversation, yes, POC is a big one that a lot of companies are focusing on. But then also, what's the user interface going to look like? Let's say we do implement this solution and it goes past POC phase, the pilot and production. What does the front end look like for the associates or the customer facing stuff we put out there? Like that's another thing that's exciting me too, is all these kind of UI UX conversations that are happening among teams who maybe haven't even done that in the back in the past. And they're thinking about, again, is that a vendor that we bring in or is this something right. as a capability? Because <clears throat> it's not just chat with X, you know, right. with or right. Y or Z. I'm not referring to the social media platform. It, yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. just chat with this thing, right? It's more yeah. than that. 
chatting with something is important and useful, but we have to move beyond this chat paradigm that we're kind of not stuck in, but a little obsessed with or defaulting to just because it's easy at the moment, you know? I compared a lot to AOL Instant Messenger. Like that was the initial social media was the chat interface. And then it's pictures with Instagram. And then it'll be more and more video stuff too. I can't wait for that to come. And it seems like it's going to evolve in that same way. Yeah, super exciting. Lots, there's always, I, I can always, you know, for sure wake up and read something interesting in the AI ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is which is great. I think that's, again, a, such a wild time that we're in just to see what's going to market and, and what companies are focusing on too. Um, uh, for us at Align AI, it's also all hands week coming up. So we're going to come together and do kind of an end of year kind of how did things go, classic company stuff too. Um, and with that, I updated my LinkedIn profile pick too. And oh, special <laughs> shout out. <laughs> special shout out because, you know, you have this great LinkedIn profile pick right now where it's you on stage doing something. And I figured I'd try and match you with that as well. So <laughs> another big accomplishment well, for the year. We were just talking about um, taking headshots too for the company yes. this week, which will be fun. And we'll have to surprise everyone with what those look like because we're going to do it on a white background and get funky with some AI backgrounds. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Let's see what makes the website. Actually, we'll probably come up with some crazy ones and then post some ones yeah. to the actual about us section of our site. That'll so check us out. Get Also check out the waitlist that's out there. We have, gosh, over 30 people who've signed up for the waitlist for the product too. So um, come out, get sign up for the waitlist, check out our new headshots. We've made actually a ton of updates to the site lately too. So come and visit. Yeah. Super exciting. Cool. We're doing a, a more public launch of the trial um, next month for the platform. So I'm really excited. We're partnering, uh, with Mantium. So Jason, who was on our last, um, podcast episode, and that's going to be one of the playbooks that you can mess around with in the product, which will be really fun. So yeah, if you're not on the wait list, you're not going to get priority access to that. That's right. That's right. Okay. So that's what's happening in our lives. Let's touch into the news real quick. Uh, you sent a really interesting kind of fact sheet from the white house, Reagan around, Biden issuing an executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy artificial intelligence. Another huge term I've started to hear more and more in the past six months is responsible AI, safe and secure AI. Um, just thinking about you know what they're working on on the U.S. side of things, I think it's great progress. I think throughout the year, we've seen a lot of other countries make moves. I think there's a great positive step in the right direction. I want to get your feedback. You know, What was your initial takeaways in seeing this step forward? And what have you been hearing kind of in the community about this stuff? Yeah, I've been, um, I did make a, a post about this recently. They covered this in last week's episode of the All In podcast. I thought David did a pretty good job going through it a little bit. I know he was pretty critical um, of a couple of elements, which I echo, um, mostly on just this somewhat obsession on the on on regulating the process and putting a licensing mechanism in place around the process and these like foundation yeah. models. And I think not that there shouldn't be any emphasis on them. I just think that there's an overemphasis on them. And we have a pretty robust open source community that's been established. Uh, and I saw that the CEO of Hugging Face posted about, you know, comparing open AI's API to foundation models that you would find in open source. And he compares that to, you know, leveraging a car versus an engine. 
And so how do, and the reason I bring that up, even though that doesn't have a ton to do with the EO that President Biden issued, is we need some paradigms to relate the anatomy of these systems to. Yeah. And when we think about, and I think a car is an interesting uh, comparison because there's obviously regulations on and specs um, that the industry requires when you are manufacturing and designing these pieces and parts that go into a vehicle. And and so I do think it's important to think about it from that perspective. Um, But there's also all of these other things that like getting your driver's license and, you know, the users and the user education and the uh, disclaimers that companies need to be able to provide to end users. Um, all, from my opinion, the biggest risk is on the outcomes and <clears throat> what these systems allow users to do and how much we error-proof the, the user experience from that perspective. And so if you look at the EO, he, he mentions a ton of different use cases. He talks about um, leveraging AI to engineer dangerous biological materials. He talks about it from a cybersecurity perspective. Um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of mentions about education. Um, and so where I do think they did a decent job in saying they don't want to stifle the innovation happening in this space, which I think is a good thing and a good call out. Um, I do think it's a little, a little bit of overkill. I feel like there's a lot of pressure. It's so odd because there's so much pressure happening where companies are pressuring for regulation because they want to be able to move and they want some guardrails around moving. Yet I do think we're too early to be able to put some of those guardrails in place. I think we're in a good position to continue um, legislation around outcomes like we do with people. Uh, Think of your you know, discrimination, anti-discrimination laws that are already in place that we can apply to AI as well. And so just holding companies accountable for outcomes if they are, you know, the ones designing and deploying these things. So it's 111 pages, the executive order is. And um, and I think it's I think it's fairly robust. I think it's a good signal that people care about what's happening. I just think maybe it's a little bit of, of overkill at the moment. And I think you draw a great parallel, again, back to your automotive, the producer versus the consumer. So how does the responsibility fall on the people who are making the car, building the model, or at least implementing it? And then the end user, again, what are the agreements? What do they need to know before they sign up to actually use it around what risks are being introduced on the consumer side, the end user side too? Yeah, it's it's a interesting conversation that will continue to develop. Obviously, the AI safety summit happened in the same week. So, and that was in London. Yeah. So there were 28 different countries, I believe, in attendance at that summit, um, which, you know, I thought was really interesting, shows a lot of collaboration efforts uh, for this particular topic, which is a good thing. Yeah. So we'll see how that evolves. Just another quick story that jumped out to me since our last episode is how the majority of employees seem to be unaware of how their employer is using AI. Something like 50% of employees across traditional organizations are unaware of like how their company is using AI and how it's being implemented as well too. So such an interesting operational problem. And I think 
a lot of these use cases as they get implemented will be more operational in their sense. And I think it's becoming more and more of an OpEx kind of focus area for a lot of companies than just an innovation team thing. All right, Nick, kick us off. Okay. So for today's episode, we are so thankful to have Maya join us from Savvy. Hi, Maya. Nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Nick. It's a pleasure to join you and Reagan today. Yeah. So let me just give a quick intro for everybody listening in. So Maya is the founder of Savvy AI. Um, she's essentially on a mission to empower all businesses to be more competitive and leveraging the power of AI and machine learning. So for our listeners at home, Maya, tell us kind of about your role at Savvy AI and what you guys have been building over there. Sure, absolutely. So I'm co-founder and CEO of Savvy AI. And we started Savvy with a singular mission, which is that we were seeing that AI and machine learning especially wasn't accessible to all teams. And I'm not talking about writing your child a bedtime story with ChatGPT. I'm talking about the kind of practical machine learning that runs enterprises today. And what we saw is that teams just couldn't find the experts like data scientists. They couldn't build and maintain the infrastructure needed for machine learning support. And what we provide them is a platform and a tool where anyone in their company can quickly build, launch, and manage their own purpose-built machine learning apps for things like lowering their charge-off rates, figuring out which warehouse to ship a product from, or so much more, these practical everyday business decisions that they need to do without a data scientist, without a big infrastructure, and most importantly, in a responsible, transparent, and auditable way that I think is table stakes nowadays when thinking about machine learning and AI and enterprise. Absolutely. And, and thanks so much for that intro, Maya. One of the topics that Reagan and I were discussing before you joined on this episode is how companies are just thinking about AI use cases differently, especially with that responsibility layer added on top. Curious as to what you've seen in terms of the companies you're working with around how they're maybe thinking about use cases for AI in general, or maybe thinking differently just in the past six months with all of the new solutions that have come to market. Well, I think there's a lot of experimentation happening right now, which is really exciting. You know, there's a lot of lab projects that are happening. Let's see if we can apply this to that. Let's see. Oftentimes, I tell the enterprises that we're working with, look, start with your business goals. Please don't start with the logic of, should I sprinkle some chat GPT on our business and will that be a strategy? Because that's not a strategy. Throughout your company, you have concrete business goals and objectives. You're trying to increase your efficiency. You're trying to decrease the cost of some process that you're running. And when you look at those business goals and you look at the data that you have, you think to yourself, well, is the best use of our people's time to wade through tons of Excel spreadsheets and tons of Tableau interfaces to figure out the answer two weeks later? Or is this a good use case where machine learning can help us sift through the data and come to better business decisions faster? So always start with what is the business use case, not can AI work on this? How much are you having to help organizations from an education perspective wade through this idea of AI? Because we've had to like do tons and tons of education for our, our customers. And I think now, you know, this generative AI thing has been a great thing and also a hard thing. So what, how do you usually approach that? How do you get people to understand the difference between generative AI and then the rest of the, what I think you've coined as vintage AI use cases? Absolutely. So we're doing a ton of education as well. And I think that ultimately um, within this industry, there still needs to be a ton of education because right now there's a lot of hand-waving hyperbole. There's a lot of magical thinking, Reagan. It's a lot of imagine a world where, 
and then insert some magical thinking here. You just attach it to your data and it suddenly works and gives you all the right answers. And look, I, I, you know, it really becomes hard for enterprises to discern what's real and what's not. What we try to do is just take them back to basics. What are you trying to accomplish? And oftentimes, you know, we help them with use case workshops and what are you trying to accomplish? What are your highest goals and priorities for this year? But let's look at this from a risk perspective. Like how risky is it if that decision is made wrong? What are the consequences of it? How easy will this be for your team? So there's still different weights that you have to measure when looking at an ideal use case. Now, as far as generative AI versus any other kind of AI, I will say this. AI is not one thing. And I think there's been a lot of confusion, uh, Reagan, we've talked about this at length, about this. There is not one model to rule them all. This is not Saren. This is not Lord of the Rings. In fact, AI is just a toolkit. And there's different flavors of AI that are best suited for different types of use cases. So I think the first thing that enterprise has to understand is what are we trying to accomplish? What kind of data are we working with? Is it visual data? Is it language data? Is it tabular data like in Excel spreadsheets? And then think, okay, does AI apply here? And how can we make AI work for us in a way that achieves these business objectives? I think for a long time too, and I know you can totally appreciate this. I've spent so much of my career working with data science teams in the enterprise ecosystem of just like trying to build something that's useful. And I've heard this over yeah. and over again, where it's like, I don't know, just tell me what's interesting in the data. Like, you know, they want you to do this bottom up like grab, grab all the data, figure out all the patterns, tell me what's useful, tell me what's interesting. What paradigm shifts have you noticed getting this type of approach and technology into the hands of the people who know the business best? I think there has been exactly, as you pointed out, a huge paradigm shift. And, and it was really unfair to look at data scientists who are incredibly bright individuals who are brilliant at math and brilliant at so many things and say to them, I think because you know this, you must understand the intricacies of our business yeah. and, and force that all on them and say, tell me what the data is telling me. Tell me what the data is telling you. And it was a little bit of an unfair ask, which is why you saw the last couple of years, there were a lot of frustrated data scientists who were even leaving the profession saying, yeah. listen, I thought I was being hired for a data science role. And most of my job was like data engineering or things that we could never get into production because we didn't have, we built the model. And it turns out the company didn't realize that somebody would have to build the endpoints to yeah. get it into our software and to, into our infrastructure. We lived these issues too firsthand when we were with Synchrony Financials. So my previous company was bought by Synchrony and I stood up and led an AI division there that was helping empower product teams to build products better with AI. And I've seen many of these problems where like at Synchrony, we had so many talented data scientists and they were very much focused on these core business problems fraud, AML, like these big, big credit and risk decisioning, these big thorny issues that almost like never go away and they're a constant, constant churn on them. But on the other hand, you look across an organization and you say, well, that's great. They're solving these big problems, but what about the everyday business problems that if we became 5% more efficient in 10 departments, we've transformed our business radically. And that was sort of the impetus behind our tool is that we're not saying that for these big thorny problems, we're replacing data scientists, we're saying for these everyday business problems, we are helping you empower your business teams, those SMEs, who those subject matter experts who absolutely understand what the business problem is in their department. We're helping empower them with this new tool that helps them get to their answer faster. When you demoed your product to me, I was so 
I was so mind blown. And I told Brendan this too, because we worked at an MLOps company for years, helping banks build out the infrastructure and architecture to deploy models, test them, you know, retrain them. And then all of these huge platforms came to market to do this. And when you, you broke it down so simply in the product, because like, I think trying to get people to understand like causal data, like what are your targets? What, what pieces of data do you think have an influence on that target? It, I mean, like, that's just such a, that's something that most people can understand. And then to be able to like hide all the hard work of like deploying, retraining, um, like learning over time, because you can do that in your platform as well. You, I just feel like you beautifully abstracted away a lot of those hard complexities that organizations were struggling with trying to build bespoke solutions for. So could you maybe walk us through what that process was like trying to empathize with some of these business stakeholders to realize like, here's the things they need and here's how we're going to display that in our product. Well, you said it so beautifully, Reagan. It's about empathizing with business stakeholders because data science and that data process with machine learning and AI was really treated, it, it was often siloed in many organizations. So there's like the center of excellence for data science. And, you know, you can't make eye contact with the data scientists. And, you know, if your company could even afford them, they're kind of sequestered away. And, you know, they build this magic model and they bring it forth. And, you know, there, there was a bit of mysticism about it, to be frank with you. Um, and many organizations were so intimidated, they didn't even start the process at all. So what I think is really interesting is what we tried to do is think of ourselves as ultimately the end consumer and the user. Like, what were we trying to solve? Well, oftentimes we were trying to solve a pretty straightforward business problem, which is, for example, how can I present the best loan to each customer that helps increase their level of acceptance of that loan, but also helps them, you know, the company decrease the charge off rate? You know, these are simple business problems. And we ask them, hey, if you have this business problem, what are your goals for that business problem? And any expert in their line item of business will tell you, well, I'm trying to increase loan acceptance. I'm trying to decrease charge off. Great. You know your goals. Next, we ask them, what do you believe influences your goals? And again, these subject matter experts, they're deep in their product. They know what their influencers are. And that's a, a form of feature design, as I've shown you, Reagan. So what we try to do is just speak the language of business goals and objectives so that we can empower them with a tool. And then I'm really excited to say we've gone one step further. So since we've last talked, we've just introduced a new product that says, hey, business users, I know you love your spreadsheets. You love you some Excel and Google Sheets. You're in there all day long. And sometimes you build these huge data pipelines, the output of which is often a spreadsheet for a business user to consume. We've now built a product that actually brings savvy into your spreadsheet. So you no longer have to go to a different tool. You can yeah. stay in your current workflow. You can stay with your current process. Just start a new column and get all of those predictions and decisions that are based on AI and machine learning right in the spreadsheets you're most comfortable working with. Our goal as a company is to come to you rather than have you have to come to us. That's great. And just in lieu of that empathy with the business, I wanted to talk to you about how you've seen businesses think differently about how they would actually engage with the model output. So I love that you're starting to meet them where they're at in Excel or in Google Sheets. Like any other interesting kind of things that have stood out to you around 
more and more of the conversation being around what, how does business engage with this model output or what does the UI or the UX look like for the business user at the end of the day? Absolutely. And I think that that's where, you know, in the beginning we started with, hey, just use our APIs and plug them into your yeah. product. No big deal. You know, of course you use APIs all day long. What we found in talking to more and more business teams is for some product teams, that was an absolute fact. They're very comfortable in the API universe. They're very comfortable with this tool set. Other business users we talked to said, listen, I don't have a backend developer or the business case I'm solving or the workflow I'm solving doesn't need API uh, outputs. So yeah. we started saying, do you like JavaScript tags? Do you like those like Google Analytics looking tags? How about you start using that and just drop them into your product? And then that evolved, Nick, naturally for us of, okay, what are you using? Well, we're using Excel. Hey, I can help you with that as well. I, yeah. I think what we're learning is that we really have to come to where these businesses are yeah. without judgment. Businesses run differently. You can have a very, very successful business. I, you know, I've, I've spoken to lots of companies in, you know, all over America that they have very successful businesses that they run off like a couple of spreadsheets because they yeah. don't need a much more complex tech stack than that. And it's very easy for technology companies to view the world through a very myopic lens of, oh, I'm sure you have this huge tech stack that involves, you know, your Databricks or your Snowflake and this and that and this and that. And I can't imagine how you can run a business without it. And meanwhile, yeah. these companies are like, hold my beer. I make $100 million in revenue and I don't need any of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to that point, Maya, you know, you see such a wide range of company sizes, small, medium, large, local, national, global. Are there any unique things that you're noticing amongst large versus small, like key differences between maybe different company types or different geographic locations of companies that stand out to you as their ability to implement AI use cases or certain struggles that some are having compared to others? I think that view would help a lot of our listeners out who identify with different company sizes and different company types. I think there are a lot of companies who are still very intimidated with the concept of AI and machine learning. Yeah. Look, ChatGPT, as Nick and Reagan, you both pointed out, it opened a lot of people's eyes as to what's possible in certain content-based use cases, whether it's like, you know, helping me write code, helping me write a bedtime story for my child, et cetera. And it really got people excited. It got, it got the C-suite excited about AI. And all of a sudden they're saying, what are we doing with AI? And all of a sudden the business turns around and, you know, one layer deeper, the business turns around, the, the, the folks on the ground turn around and go, well, uh, we might not have data for this or the data we have, we never uh, collected in a causal event driven way. So I'm not even sure we can get started. You know, that's, that's something that we encountered uh, with a lot of companies all over America. It doesn't matter where they're located. Sometimes they don't have the data. And what we had to invent into our product is a way for them to cold start AI is to start with no data at all and saying, hey, just drop in this tag and drop in this snippet of code into your process or your product. And we'll start collecting the data for you because you might not even have it. And that shouldn't prevent you from starting some basic use cases and basic learnings. I, I think what I'm also finding is a lot of mid-market companies don't want to be software shops. They want to do their business well. They don't necessarily want to build an AI practice. They want to take advantage of AI and machine learning without having to be an AI shop. Just like, you know, when mobile came about, not a lot of people wanted to be a mobile app development shop. They're like, sure, I'd want a mobile app for my business. I don't want to have to hire a bunch of developers to build it and maintain it. Like, that's not my core business. My core business is I run a trucking company. 
And that's what I want to do really well. And that's what I know how to do really well. So I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the mid-market wants to use machine learning and AI as a tool. And they don't necessarily want to start building infrastructure around it quite yet. They're not seeing enough data proof points of ROI and value. You know, there, there's a lot of news articles. It's transforming your business. It's transforming the workplace. It's transforming everything. And they're like, why don't you transform this one process I have? Then I'll believe you that you can transform my business. And there's a huge leap between A and B right now. Yeah, 100%. I always list the stats on ROI of AI historically, even at large enterprises. And it is horrible. It is just not good. I mean, we're in this second hype cycle of enterprise AI right now. And I really, really hope that one of these things unlocks some glimmer of hope on ROI for these companies, because there's a lot of promise, there's a lot of marketing. And from our experience, we've just not seen companies strike on the ROI piece, because I think maybe they're, they're, they're shooting too big. I, oh, I totally agree. You know, we've seen that time and time again, where the organization gets excited about AI, some budgets are, are loosened, the purse strings are loosened for an AI project. And the initial gut instinct is we have to play catch up. We have to shoot the moon. And Dang. the first AI project we're going to do is going to track is going to attack our biggest use case. The one that is mission critical to our business. The one that's going to involve no less than 50 to hundred stakeholders. And it's almost like they're setting themselves up to fail. I think one of the most important things is, is when choosing an AI project to start with, businesses should look to small to mid-sized projects to start with something where they can quickly gain experience and they can prove out ROI because that'll make the business feel more comfortable to tackle bigger projects or maybe eventually to get their own data scientists. But our point has always been at Savvy is that you need to empower the team you have because right now in this economy, in this job market, you need to look at the team you have and upskill them and yeah. say to them, hey, I'm going to provide you a tool where you can do your job better and you don't have to understand you know, heteroscedasticity to do your job better, but you can use a tool that will help you get there. And it will help you get there in a way that we can see that's transparent and explainable and auditable. But start with these small to mid-sized projects. Start with projects where you can clearly define what ROI looks like and then prove ROI before you start hiring big teams, before you start knife fighting for NVIDIA chips or whatever you have to do to build it out. So yeah, there's such a get- massive step function from what I've seen is the zero to one is huge. The step function is just massive. And I think that's, what's intimidating about participating in this ecosystem. And that's what we're trying to address is that zero to one and saying, look, you've been told it's really hard because the tools up until now have been built by data scientists for data scientists. And like I said, data scientists are wonderful people. And they built a whole generation of tooling that was about helping themselves do their job more efficiently. The problem is, is you put that tooling in a business user's hands and they're like, I'm out. Sorry, I don't know what's going on here. This is not, this is not my swim lane. And it shouldn't be their swim lane. What they're trying to accomplish might just be like, listen, I'm trying to lower ACH returns at my bank. Can I just do it in a way that makes sense in a project that's, you know, under four weeks where I can get some learnings, I can prove some results, I can go to my boss and say, look what I did. I did it without any additional resources. I mean, that's what's really important. 
the, the asking for resources where you have no proof points, and then especially asking for a lot of resources to do an overall data and ML transfer, you know, company-wide transformation, just not going to work without building business cases first. And culturally, you need those wins in order to get people bought in, to have more of this wider group bought in to support this and really help with data quality spot checks throughout, even once we do get it out into production as well, too. Like it, it takes an army, certainly. So getting those cultural wins early on and making it feel much more approachable is a thing I think a lot of folks um, are learning over time as they start to approach these initial use cases in their companies. And I think that's to a certain extent, I will credit, you know, chat GPT like tools and LLM tools, large language models tools, yep. and that they make AI feel much more approachable, which is awesome. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, as you know, they also have some drawbacks where they're great for certain use cases where let's say facts don't matter a hundred percent. They're they're not as great for other use cases and especially in regulated industries, which we work a, a lot in which is where not only facts matter, but explainability matters, auditability matters. If someone shows up from the CFPB and says, why did you make this lending decision? And you're just like, we need it because this chat GPT agent told me so. Yeah. That's not going to get very far. You're going to be dragged in front of Congress testifying in front of Elizabeth Warren and no one wants that. <laughs> oh, so good. I want to talk about just, you mentioned cold starting and I, mm -hmm. I want to double click on that just for a second as kind of our last point here, because I, I actually think that this concept is going to be really fascinating for a lot of people listening in. So one of my big questions for you is around data quality and data accessibility and availability, because that is the hardest part for companies. So can you explain what cold starting is and how you've implemented that to help companies here? Absolutely. Listen, data projects in and of themselves are their own beast. And they are, they are a big prerequisite right now for AI. And that's made it really challenging for, you know, mid-sized companies and even large companies to get started with AI use cases for some of their workflows because they just never had the data. Or imagine you built a brand new product. Of course, you don't have any data about that. So what we, what we learned is that, again, this goes back to like empathizing with the business user and going to where they are, is that we have to help them be able to start a version of AI without any pre-existing historical data. And the way that we do that is we give them a snippet of code that they can drop into their software or drop into their processes. It sits quietly in the background and it collects that event-driven causality data it needs. And it drops it into a secure SOC 2 compliant container. And when enough data is collected, and surprisingly, this can take as little as four weeks, all of a sudden you have enough data to model on. And, and that's another, Reagan, that's another preconceived notion that a lot of companies have is that you need to have like this petabyte of data lake, that you need to have this massive, massive data infrastructure to even start AI. Listen, a lot of use cases are pretty simplistic. They don't have a lot of complexity to them. You're starting, you're just deciding between A and B. And you don't have a lot of factors that influence that decision. And a model can be made, uh, you know, as Andrew Ning points out, a clean model can be made with as little as 300 records of data. So when you start thinking about how can we help companies that don't have the data start collecting the data and in a clean way that they can start modeling on, that becomes very interesting for a lot of companies that previously thought that they wouldn't even be able to touch this use case. And I'm really proud to say that about 60% of our customers are using this cold start program with at least one of their use cases where they were previously told they could not start AI or machine learning because they did not have the data. They would have to wait like a year to go get enough data. And instead, six weeks later, we're off to the races. 
that's really exciting and a great way for just, again, teams to get started, to start to justify the resources that they'd want to hire, the other investments they'd want to make. You have to crawl, walk, run this. That's such a fantastic point. Thank you for making that. And and we just, were walking and running for a while, but we've come back down to crawl. <laughs> Maya, thank you so much for joining today. This is just a wealth of knowledge in the short time we had together. Um, we're going to link your contact info, your LinkedIn website, everything in the description. <laughs> Any other ways you'd like folks to get a hold of you in case they listen in and they want to get in contact with Savvy AI? Um, LinkedIn, or they can email me at my at SavvyAI.com. I'm always happy to talk to folks about what they could be doing in AI, especially folks that have been previously shut out of it by thinking that they don't have the in-house talent or the resources to do it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Maya, for your time today. And Thank you listening. both for having me. It was so great. Yeah, yeah. Good Thank to you see so you. Much. See you. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for watching or listening to AI or Die. Remember to listen or die on any of the podcast platforms and make sure to subscribe or die by visiting us at getalineai.com. We will see you on the next episode. One, two, three, it was intended for the human to support the machine, the machine to support the human. And AI means something different to anybody you talk to, which is wild. This is AI or Die.